Hey everybody, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to Beekeeping for Newbies. As always, I do appreciate you being here and taking the time to listen. Thank you so very much, and uh, feel free to hit me up, Jeff, at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Ideally, we would be talking about bee business, but if you're bored and don't have anything to say, but you really want to check in, just shoot me an email anyway. All right, this week we got episode 28. We are talking about splitting hives and prepping them for whatever's next and a few other considerations and all that good fun stuff. So I wanted to mention something kind of as we start off, you know, we're moving into now the kind of second season of, you know, of the show of, you know, the information that you've been getting as a new beekeeper. And, you know, I want to start incorporating more details on the quote, you know, why of what you're doing. One thing that I really don't like is when someone says, you know, do this or do that, but provides no reason for doing so. You know, I get it that there are certain times when questions on a topic are viewed as, you know, some sort of insubordination or maybe inappropriate or bad timing or whatever it might be. But as an example, when a drill sergeant says, drop and give me 20, he or she wants you to immediately get into the push-up position and do the push-ups. That's not really a time for Q&A, right? However, with most things in life, it's perfectly normal and frankly, you know, should be encouraged for people to ask questions. It shows that they're engaged, they're thinking about the task at hand, and that they want it to be done right and they want to learn. So my hope here today and on future episodes as well is that you not only get an understanding of the physical tasks that need to be performed in order to manage your split in this case, but that you also have a cognitive understanding of the why behind what you're doing. You know, having that knowledge will make you better able to understand what's going on and to better recognize changes that are taking place within the colony. So let's talk about what's going on in the spring. So we have a big nectar flow, right? The fuel needed for young brood is abundant. Uh, you got plenty of nectar for carbs, plenty of, you know, pollen for protein, you know, re realistically, you know, somewhere in that 1,000 to 1,500 more workers are being born every single day. That's more bees foraging and bringing back more resources. So with all this activity, something's got to give, right? Unless you take some kind of action, you're going to have a problem. Space is not unlimited, and if you don't take action, the bees certainly will. So what is going on inside the hive that is causing this urge to swarm? So as we've discussed in the past, you know, there are a lot of important things that, that have to be happening in the hive at all times. And quite often, you know, as the beekeeper, you'll feel like you're shooting at a moving target, right? And you are. I mean, there's constantly change. That's the one constant is the fact that you have so much change. You've got weather. You've got, you know, the population of the colony is always expanding and contracting. You've got bugs, pests, disease. There's always something else knocking on the door to try and cause, you know, some kind of a problem. And, you know, quite frankly, it's not easy to manage everything. I mean, it can be easy if you just want to leave them alone and, and hope for the best. But if you really want to play an active role in, in maintaining and caring for the bees and you want to give them the maximum possibility of success, then you're going to have to be engaged and involved. So let's talk about one major factor in a colony's tendency to swarm. Now, you, you probably are already thinking this because you've heard me say it 4,000 times, but genetics, right? As with everything else in beekeeping, genetics play a huge role. Species of the bees that you want to keep is also significant. There are some species of honeybee that have a greater propensity towards swarming. So that kind of plays into the discussion we've had in the past around all of the factors that you look for in a, you know, in the bees and the traits that you want them to have in your colony and your apiary that uh, are ideal traits. For example, we've gone through it before with being able to overwinter and hygiene, good hygiene, 
temperament, honey production, um, all of those t- disease resistance, you know, these types of things. But tendency to swarm, you know, is definitely on that list. But it, it is a balancing act between all the traits that you're hoping for compared to all the traits that you get. Now, I would consider a colony to be great if they were able to overwinter, they had good hygiene and good temperament. You know, for me, honey production and tendency to swarm are a little lower on my list. Not that they aren't important, but I'm not in the honey production business, at least not right now. And since I like to wear as little protective gear as I as I have to when it's really hot out, you know, I prefer a mild-mannered colony. You know, that being said, I've kept, you know, some pretty mean colonies around just because they're highly productive and very resilient. They just, they had good genetics in other spaces, but their temperament was pretty nasty. But, you know, if you're able to grab maybe 150 or 200 pounds of honey, you know, sometimes you you make those trade-offs. I think years ago, I remember something from Michael Palmer where he talked about, you know, a couple of his colonies that were pretty bad and they actually would label the the uh, colonies outside the hives, you know, skull and crossbones and stuff. So whatever you got to do to get through it, you know. But again, that's part of those trade-offs that you have to make. Sometimes you're going to sacrifice one for the other. If you can get four out of five, that may not be too bad. But anyway, genetics are, are always an important aspect to consider. Another big reason for swarming is because they're just plain out of space, right? I mean, as more and more resources are brought into the colony... You know, they will begin to make use of any and all available space, which is going to force them to store some of that down in the brood chamber, right? So now the queen can't lay enough eggs, which is certainly problematic, especially, you know, early in the season during a nectar flow. You know, also with more bees being added, you know, to that same space, we run into an overcrowding of the hive, which will increase the colony's overall stress level, um, as well as the physical temperature, you know, inside the hive. You know, both these things can contribute to swarming. The last thing I would say is to keep in mind that this is how bees procreate and and keep the dream alive, right? I mean, you may be doing everything right, and they still decide to swarm. You can give in and let them do their thing, you know, or you can manage it in a few different ways. So before we go too much further into our splitting discussion, let's talk about some some terminology, and let's make sure that we all know the different, you know, types of queen cells and and what they are and, and, and where you might expect to see them. Now, I'm sometimes bad about generically referring to any queen cell as just a queen cell versus being specific and identifying them as a swarm cell, an emergency cell, a supersedure cell. So since we just mentioned all of them, let's, let's talk about each one, what they mean, where they tend to be located, you know, a little bit of cause and effect, and hopefully that'll better enable you to figure out you know, what you're seeing when you open the hives and you're doing your inspections. So the first thing that you're likely to see is going to be a queen cup. And this is just a, you know, rounded, um, slightly larger version of a cell that you would see generally towards like the lower one third of a frame. And it stands out, right? It doesn't look anything like any of the other cells. And it's just a little cup. It's, it's really difficult to describe it. I mean, you can just Google and do, or do a, any kind of a search online and a queen cup image and you can find a picture. But essentially, this is just a thing that bees are going to do. In the spring, queen cups are going to pop up. I don't worry about them, right? Because my thought behind this is I'd rather know where they are and know where to look in case they do become swarm cells. If you go through and destroy them, they're just going to make them somewhere else. So if you can see them and you, you visualize, okay, I know on this colony, you know, frames four, five, and six have queen cups on both sides and they're roughly in this area, you know, at least you, you know they're there. Now, I know some people get really bent out of shape. They don't like them. Any possibility of anything that may contribute to a swarm, they don't like it, and they squeeze them closed. 
I'm not going to tell you you can't do that. I mean, if that's your management strategy, then go ahead and get rid of them. I leave them alone because they don't hurt anything. And, you know, when the queen cup is there, if they decide to make it into a, a swarm cell, you know, you just look inside of it and you'll see a little tiny larva in there and a pool of royal jelly and you know, okay, well, it's it's there. It's probably about, you know, three or four days old at that point in time. And, uh, you know, I've got at day four. So the cycle of a queen from egg until birth is 16 days. So by that point in time, you're about four days in. So you got another 12 days or so before you're going to see a fully developed queen if you don't take some kind of action. And we'll talk some more about that later. So if an egg is laid in the queen cup and it's, you know, fed royal jelly and they're intending to make this into a queen, you know, after about a week, they'll go ahead and close that up. Typically with those swarm cells, like I said, they generally own that lower third of the, the frame. You know, a lot of times down towards the bottom is not unusual. In fact, a lot of times you can lift up that entire deep or medium or whatever it is that, that you're using for your brood chamber and look up from underneath and a lot of times you can see them down low. And very rarely is there just one. You know, I would make sure that you're looking and seeing just how many of them that you have. But the swarm cell, it just, it kind of has that peanut look to it. It looks like a, a, an actual, you know, unbroken, you know, like Mr. Peanut, peanut. That's, that's what it looks like. And again, this is a typical swarm cell. This is the colony determining that for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, uh, just the drive that they have, or they are in fact overcrowded because of the spring flow or what, you know, whatever it might be, they've decided this is going to happen. And that's when you're going to see those swarm cells. The next type is going to be an emergency cell. And a lot of times, and we're going to go in a little bit deeper to this topic in a few minutes here, but at a high level here, an emergency cell is something that you will see when something catastrophic has happened to that queen and the colony knows it and they immediately take action with the youngest larva that they can get to and they will take that one as well as usually a couple others and they will make emergency cells because they've got nothing, right? They have no queen, no way to continue the colony, so they immediately take action. Emergency cells can kind of be anywhere, but in the general, you know, you're probably going to see them right about in the middle. Right where typical brood is laid, you'll just see a peanut kind of looking swarm cell type of thing, but it comes right out of the middle of the frame, and it, it clearly is not planned, right? You can tell that that was not a place where they really intended to do that when everything was originally established and set up, you know, as they were doing their building construction diagrams and everything. That was not a plan. And you can tell it looks it looks different, but it's still, you know, it's still a queen cell. The last would be a supersedure cell. Supersedure cells are a little different, right? So we, you know, we again we talked about the emergency cell being like an oh crap, wherever there's a good valid larva, that's where we're going to make a cell. It can kind of be anywhere, but really right smack in the middle of the brood chamber. But you know, and again, swarm cells tend to be in that lower third down near the bottom of the frame. The supersedure cell is a different scenario altogether. So this is when, for whatever reason, the colony recognizes that there is a problem with the queen. Now, you might look at her and be like, oh, queen looks good. She's moving around. She's mobile. She's doing her thing. But as that queen ages, the amount of pheromone that she puts out will diminish. You know, a queen is typically the most productive in her second year. So if you get a package of bees, for example, this year, and that queen's doing her thing all year long. Everything's great. She overwinters. Next year, she should have a pretty kick-butt year. 
And then, you know, she's probably good for another season beyond that. And then you maybe need to start thinking about requeening. But if you don't requeen, that's one of the beauties of, of the honeybees, right? Because if you like that queen and she's been great for your colony, then the, you know, the colony will go ahead and create a supersedure cell. They will respectfully dismiss her and they will bring in a new queen that has her same genetics. So, like I said, a supersedure cell is, again, going to be probably in the middle somewhere of the colony, and uh, that's di- directly tied to some kind of a problem with the queen. Hey, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you're enjoying the show and are finding the information to be useful and valuable. In order to help keep the lights on, we do need to take a quick commercial break. Thank you so very much for hanging in there, and I appreciate you. We will be right back. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All right, everyone, welcome back, and thank you for staying with us today. As always, feel free to reach out if you have any questions or comments. I always enjoy hearing about your experiences, answering questions, and learning more about the challenges you're facing in different parts of the world. So please keep them coming. It's Jeff at beekeepingfornewbies.com. Now let's get back to the show on the Beekeeping for Newbies radio network. Okay, that's not a real thing, but I'm trying to make it sound more official, so just play along, all right? Thanks a lot. All right, so one thing I wanted to cover real quick here is talking about swarming versus absconding. I probably should have actually mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it's important. It comes up all the time in discussion, so let's just talk about it real quick here. So with swarming, again, we we just covered how this is a spring activity. This is something that's going on as part of that. Absconding is a little bit different. Absconding is basically where the entire colony... You know, they kind of sort of pull, if you're an old football fan and you know about like the, the uh, Baltimore Colts years ago when they left and went to Indianapolis, that's absconding, right? They packed up everything in the middle of the night and they left. And that's what the bees are going to do. This can be caused by a variety of factors. I mean, you may have a pest or something inside the hive that is just driving them nuts. It could be, and, and quite often I see this in the middle of the summertime. I mean, it's just stinking hot. Bees are bearding out everywhere and they are miserable and upset, and they just they tap out. They're like, all right, we got to go. We got to find something else. And it's, it's really, really sad because typically when they do this, they're doing it at a time of year where it's really, really difficult for them to recover. I mean, they've got to find a new home. They have to rebuild everything, and they don't have the resources, right? Typically, especially in the middle of the summertime like that, or even if it's later, they've got no resources really. I mean, they can pack up whatever they can carry, but that is not enough to rebuild an entire colony and give them the resources and the food stores they need to make it through the winter. So absconding is kind of a really, really bad thing, but a good sign for that is when you open the colony one day, open the hive, and look inside, the entire colony is gone. So again, you know, how do you prevent it, right? It's, you know, making sure you're maintaining, you know, good uh, pest management, disease control, ventilation, you know, all of those kind of typical things that we've talked about before. You know, I had a discussion with somebody recently who who thought that maybe their colony had absconded 
at the end of the year, but she had noticed that they had left behind, I think maybe the queen and a couple of dozen workers. And I think what may have happened in that situation, and her and I had a couple of, uh, you know, had a good email exchange about that, but I think what may have actually happened is bees do this kind of really cool thing. If a bee recognizes, you know, a worker recognizes that she's sick, she knows something's not right, not feeling good. She doesn't just hang out there in the colony and hang out with everybody and walk around, hey, what's up, and, and keep spreading her disease. Like, she will jam. Like, she takes off, heads out, and she'll leave, and she won't come back. It is entirely possible that if you have a scenario like that where, you know, you have what appears to be a relatively healthy colony, and then you go out a month later, and you've got almost nothing but yet there's still plenty of food stores in there. There's no obvious disruptive activity, wax moth, you know, other types of uh, brood-based diseases or things that are obvious to you. It is entirely possible that there was some kind of disease or infection and one after another. It gives that very much kind of textbook colony collapse type of look where they'll just, one leaves, another one leaves, and they go off and they die. Again, what's causing this? It could be varroa. It could be, again, some other type of illness. But it's, it's very important to recognize the difference between swarming and absconding, right? Because with a swarm, you're going to have about 50%, maybe even more, of you know, the existing colony is going to go with the old queen, the existing queen who, who, was, who, you know, who was running the show there. They're all going to go with her. And the rest of the bees will stay behind and manage things for the new queen that is born. I would love to have a better understanding of this part of things, right? How do they figure out who's going to stay and go. I mean, if it were people, you'd just say, okay, everybody, I want you to count, you know, one, two, one, two, and just repeat that all the way down the line. Okay, all of the ones, you guys are leaving. All the twos, you guys are staying. Like, that's pretty straightforward. How do they do that? How do they figure that out? I don't know. I don't think anybody has a good answer for that one. But with the swarm, half the population roughly is going to leave. So that's a pretty good indicator, right? If you're doing your inspections regularly and you see, man, look at this, what a huge population, everything is coming along. I've got, you know, lots of stores coming in, good brood patterns, everything looks good. And then you go out there a couple of days later, maybe a week later, and you notice a lot of bees missing or a significantly diminished number of bees. That's where you want to start pulling frames. Because you'll see, you'll be able to go and you'll find a queen cell. You'll find the bottom of it will be open. That's where the queen emerged. And then if there are other queen cells, look on the sides of them because she'll go ahead and attack the other queens through the sides, the ones that haven't been born yet. She'll go ahead and kill them. So that's how you can tell that they've been born. Or, or sometimes you may even see two of them that have hatched, and then you know there was some kind of a little battle royal, little arm wrestling match or wing wrestling match or whatever they do. But yeah, it's it's very easy to differentiate between the absconding and the swarming. All right, so we know what a swarm is. We know how, you know, what the colony might look like leading up to a swarm. We know what different types of cells are, where they might be located. So now comes a few more decisions because you haven't had to make quite enough of them yet, right? It seems like every time you turn around, you got to make these big, big B decisions. But here's another one for you, right? The first thing you need to decide is how many colonies that you want to maintain, you know, as I've mentioned many times before, I, I really like having at least two. I like the fact that if there's a problem with one colony, I can take frames or resources from another to kind of boost them. I like having a comparison, you know, especially in the springtime when you're not really sure, are they just slow to get moving? Is their population significantly diminished? You have two of them side by side, and it's very easy to at least have a basis of comparison to say, well, I'm not really sure what they should be doing right now on a 52-degree day in March 
But that one over there looks really, really active and that one not so much, right? At least it gives you some kind of a comparison. But all of that is an individual decision that you're going to have to make based on what's best for you. I mean, some people really only want one and that's completely fine. Now, you just have to remember that, you know, keep in mind that if you're trying for honey production, you just want to have some honey for yourself. You need to make sure you're managing it by supering early, giving them plenty of space, giving them plenty of ventilation, and making sure that they don't start thinking about the idea of absconding and and leaving you with nothing. So once you know how many colonies you ultimately would like to have, you then need to figure out how quickly that you want to get there and then start looking at kind of the risk to reward of trying to accomplish that in one season or, you know, spreading it across two or more. So as an example, you may have a great overwintered colony that is looking really strong. So you decide that, you know, to reach your goal of 10 colonies, for example, you're going to do four splits from it, and then you'll split all of them once next spring, and you'll be at 10 colonies. Now, in that planning, you need to consider several things, all right? Number one, do you have enough hardware to provide the boxes, the frames, feeders, and everything else for however many colonies that you want? And if you do, do you have enough time and energy to deal with that many colonies worth of inspections every weekend or every other weekend, whatever you do, and and being able to manage potential swarms and all the things that come with that? Do you have that time and energy to do that? Number two, are they going to be standardized on one hardware type? Or are you going to mix it up to try other things, right? If you're going to mix it up, remember to have backups in case something breaks or you suddenly need more space. I mean, I like the idea of saying, well, hey, I'm going to standardize on on a single deep with mediums above that, queen excluder in between. But I also want to play around with, you know, stacking four frame nukes for a high. And I want to try the double nuke kind of setup that we talked about, right? All those things are awesome, and they're great, and they're fun to experiment with and play around. Just know that you have to have the hardware you need for that particular colony. And like I said, I always recommend having backups. You can get into a situation where you can be making a pretty sizable financial investment. Now, if you're crafty and you can get a hold of the wood yourself and and you know cut it from trees and use a bandsaw and make your own table saw and everything, cool, that's great. With the price of lumber being what it is, it's going up everywhere, whether it's you know Man Lake or what trying to think of all the companies better be and whatever these other companies are that are out there, you know, you're going to pay, you're going to pay for, for hardware. So just keep all those things in mind. The next thing, number three here that I have is, do you have enough yard space so that you're not going to agitate your neighbors or have somebody, you know, draw some attention to you that you don't necessarily want? Like as an example, you know, at my house, I may or may not have had about 50 colonies at my house. I don't think that that was something that my neighbors appreciated. I, we did have a discussion at one point in time, but it was it was for one season. And honestly, the only reason was because of the whole COVID stuff that was going on because I couldn't get them where I needed them. I couldn't get access to the sugar syrup that I wanted to feed them. And it just became better to keep them here. And that was that. But again, something to keep in mind. And, and lastly, number four here, do you have the budget for making a lot of sugar syrup if there is a seasonal dearth in your area, because you think like, oh, it's no big deal. I'll go get a bag of sugar. When I had, I'm trying to remember, I think at, at about five colonies, they'll do a five gallon bucket every day. So with a five gallon bucket, I'm putting a 25 pound bag of sugar. So the ideal scenario is where you have a pallet, you know, and you have the you know, somebody at a local food supply place or a Sam's Club, whatever, drop a pallet of 25-pound bags, you know, in the back of your truck, and then you got a forklift, and then you can 
put it somewhere where things aren't going to get to it. And then you get to mix up 25 pounds of sugar syrup every day while you're feeding them. Again, again, if you have the time, the resources, the energy and all that kind of stuff, that's a, a great option to, to have, but it may not even be an issue, right? It depends on where you live and whether or not you have a dearth to contend with and whether or not you need to feed where you are. But again, it's just something to keep in mind because those 25 pound bags, I think they were about 10 bucks a piece. Well, couple years ago, I guess they're probably going to be about 15 bucks a piece by now based on inflation. But either way, it's an investment you're going to have to keep making over and over again in the event that you would need to feed them in your area. So now that you know what your long-term goals are and you figured out how many colonies will work for you and your budget and your personality, you need to figure out how many splits you can safely get out of the original colony without jeopardizing its health or its future. This part's incredibly important to both the source and the split colonies. You know, I think the ideal ratio is a one-to-one split, right? If, I mean, if this is what I'm doing, I usually will do slightly more bees into the split colony as many of those foragers, you know, from that split, they're going to end up finding their way back to the original colony. But in the spring, you know, when things are, you know, when all is perfect in the bee world, they're going to recover from the split very quickly. But the more colonies that you split off of that main colony, the longer it'll, it'll take for that primary or like, you know, your source colony to rebuild itself back to full fighting strength. So be very mindful of the nectar flow in your area and and be cognizant of that when you're doing your split. I mean, splits need to build up very quickly if they hope to survive. And if you're at the end of the nectar flow, don't hesitate to use pollen substitute or, you know, frame feeders, bucket feeders, you know, whatever you need to do to help keep them stimulated to lay and, and produce more eggs, more brood nurse bees, et cetera, because they, they really have to build that colony up very quickly. And like I said, doing a one-to-one split is, is very safe. It allows you to re- reduce or suppress that urge to swarm. It allows you to double your investment, right? So if you spent 100 bucks or 150 bucks on a package of bees, well, now you got two of them, right? You just reduced your cost of entry into beekeeping by 50%. Hooray. But under the right conditions, I mean, almost every year, there's a f- you know, few colonies where I'll split them four or five ways. It destroys the productivity of that primary hive. That primary colony is going to have no productivity that year. So just know that if you intend to get honey from that primary colony and you're doing splits, it's not going to happen, right? You're going to split them up and you're going to be sending resources four or five different ways. It's going to be, you know, kind of stressful for all parties involved. But again, I think especially as a newer beekeeper, just try to do one. Just do one for one and and see how that goes. And then maybe next year, the following year, you can look at doing more if it makes sense. The next thing I want to talk about is how you're going to get queens into these new splits. Here's what, what I would recommend, you know, in the order of what I think is going to be best for that new colony. So number one, the best option would be for you to order, buy, or make a mated queen. A mated queen can be installed into a queenless hive, and in just over three weeks, you have new bees being born. Queen pheromones present, the bees are happy, everybody's happy. Number two, the next option here, the next best approach would be a queen cell or you know a swarm cell, and it can be from your primary colony. This is one thing I've done before too, is I've made the decision on how many splits I'm going to make based on how many swarm cells I have. So if I go in, I'm like, okay, well, there's six swarm cells. All right, let's do four splits and we'll destroy the two smallest queen cells. Right, And I will take one frame that has a queen cell on it, and I will drop that one frame into one of the splits. 
recognizing that as long as that queen cell is capped, within a week, a new queen is going to be born. Now, if you don't have queen cells in your colony, it's still a little early. There's nothing wrong with buying a queen from you know, a reputable queen breeder. So with that queen cell, you're going to be about 30 days away from getting any new bees being born, right? And that kind of stinks. I mean, you're losing a lot of good productive time you know, during that nectar flow. But if it's early enough, you should still have time for them to build up some resources. One important differentiator, though, between this approach and having a mated queen is that this newly born virgin queen from the queen cell, she has to be born healthy, and she has to go out and successfully return home from her mating flight. Unfortunately, we lose you know many good queens on that flight, and you know the struggle is real. And uh, you know it's happened. I, I would say for me, I'm probably losing about 25% on a mating flight, roughly. So you know when I'm doing actual queen rearing myself, I just use these little mini mating nukes. And they're just small little styrofoam things with these miniature frames and a little sugar syrup feeder in there. And you drop the queen cell in, put them on a pallet, strap them down, and then come back like two weeks. And that two-week period is enough time for that queen to, to be born, emerge, go out, do her mating flight, come back, start laying some eggs, and then you just take her and put her into a colony and she's all ready to go. Now, the last approach that I would throw out here is definitely the easiest, I mean, by far, but it's probably the worst way to do things. And this is what they call the walk-away split. This is where you divide the colonies up and you don't even worry about where the queen is. You basically take the original colony and let's say that you've got, you know, two 10-frame deeps on there, then you're going to grab a frame of brood from one, drop it into your split colony, frame of honey, you know, and you'll just kind of go back and forth and keep going until everything is divided up relatively evenly. You're not worried about where the queen is. You'll find out when you come back. And you wait about a week, you come back, you open the colonies up. If you open the first one up and you don't see any eggs in there at all, then that probably means that you have the colony that did not have the queen and you should start looking for an emergency queen cell. Whichever one has eggs also has the queen, right? That's the obvious part of that. So as long as the other colony has eggs and young larvae when you do your split, which is a critically important aspect of this, you have to make sure that they have either eggs or young larvae in each colony to do this walk-away split. And as long as they've got that, they can make an emergency queen cell and start making a new queen. The sad thing is, like I mentioned earlier, it takes 16 days to go from an egg to a queen. And then you're looking at another five to seven days for the queen's mating flight then three weeks for the first worker to be born. So you're basically losing six weeks of productivity, right? I mean, depending on how small of a split that you make, you can really be pushing the edges of a bee's life expectancy. And with no bees to replace the aging bees in that small colony, you can make a pretty interesting situation for yourself, really. So I I really strongly discourage that approach. If you can, at a minimum, have a queen cell that you put into the colony that's huge. That really, really makes a big difference. Now, if you want to take it kind of to the next level, what you could also do is, and I've got a few of these around uh, in my yard as well, where I've got these two frame nukes that I just leave them packed all the time. Not right now, but during the season, I leave them packed with with bees and a queen all the time. And they're constantly making queen cells because they're so packed in. And that's a great way to kind of have a steady supply of queen cells from a good queen that you've already had experience with and you know that she you know she's a good that she has good genetics but other than that you know 
call around, ask somebody in the B club, ask a friend if they've got a queen cell you can get. They're usually pretty cheap. Maybe you can find a local breeder that'll get you one for five bucks, right? They're not that expensive, but doing the emergency cell approach, the walk away split, that's if you're in an area that has a really long flow, right? If you have a nectar flow from May to August, then by all means, right? You got plenty of time to recover that colony. But where I am here in Southeast Virginia, you know, Northeast North Carolina, that's that's not good, right? That's not a good approach because that nectar flow is really, really strong early. It tapers, and you just don't give that colony enough time to rebuild and get enough stores set aside for the winter. Lastly, I would say that, you know, the, the, the key takeaway on all of that is, you know, all three of those suggestions are going to work. But which method you choose is going to have to be based on your budget, your location, your nectar flow, and, and your risk tolerance. Well, folks, that about wraps things up for the week here. I'm going to get another Bee Buzz episode out here probably within the next 48 hours or so, definitely by the end of the weekend. And I've got several notes. And like I said, I'm trying to separate the episodes from all of the personal emails and side discussions and things like that. So I've got several emails that I'd like to discuss with everybody. And I'll be firing up the next, I think it's Bee Buzz episode four. So that'll be followed and on its way here in the next couple of days. And I will be at the apiary tomorrow. I'll probably be there a couple of days next week. I've got a million things going on. I'll probably mention it in the Bee Buzz so I can keep everybody happy over here and keep everybody on task. So as always, be with two E's. Be kind to one another. Have your pet spader neuter. Please tip your waiters and waitresses and never eat yellow snow. Take care, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.